Well, two weeks ago today, many of you know there's a tornado that touched down in Joplin, Missouri, uh, wiping out much of that city. Uh, a woman named Angie Williams was but one of many who survived the tornado. And she wrote of her experiences. I want you to hear what she said. After we got home from church and had eaten lunch, the girls and I took an afternoon nap while Daddy had to go to work. And after we woke up, I started to do dishes and was going to get dinner ready. Adley was watching a movie, so we didn't have the local news station playing, completely unaware of weather. Trey, her husband, called, which is unusual to tell us to watch the weather. I turned on the TV in the news station. He and I decided together that we were safe and the storm was heading north of us. So we hung up and I started going back to doing what I was doing. Then my mom called and said, do you know that you're under a tornado warning? I said, really? No. And then the sirens started going off. I, I hung up and took the girls to the bathtub and sat down. The sirens quit going off. So we got out of the bathroom and started to resume our evening. I put Avery in a stand-up bouncy seat in the living room and Adley was sitting on the couch. My mom called again to check on us. While on the phone, I continued to look through the window, keeping, keeping an eye on the extremely dark sky. When looking out my front window, the sky to the left was a pretty light blue, and while the sky to the right was black. I kept hearing the weathermen saying, the storm is over the heart of Joplin. Over the heart of Joplin, I thought, is that me? And then I noticed hail sporadically falling out the front window. And I told my mom, who was still on the phone, that it's hailing. And she said, get in the hallway, that's not a good sign. So I told Adley to get in the hallway. I picked up Avery, still in the bouncy seat, and placed her in the hallway. I went to Adley's room and grabbed her bed pillows and her special stuffed puppy dog and blankets and then shut her bedroom door. I went to my bedroom and grabbed just a few more bed pillows and shut our bedroom door along with Avery's bedroom door and the hall bathroom door. These things I don't always do. And then something told me to remove Avery from the bouncy seat and hold her in my lap. So I took her out and put the seat back in the living room. And then I realized the TV was too loud and it wasn't telling me anything worth hearing. It was playing an old TV show, Seinfeld. So I got up to turn it down so I could hear more of what was happening outside. It seemed like seconds after I sat in the hallway, the hail and the extreme winds began banging on the front of the house. Still on the phone with my mom, I was giving her a play-by-play what was happening. I said, it's hitting the front of the house. It's really strong. And then the power flickered and I, I let out a shriek and it flickered on and off. And then I heard the sound of a train. And my mom said, and I told my mom, and she said, that's it. Cover your head. Get as low as you can. Get low. Get low. The force pushing on the house got stronger until it ripped through the house, taking everything in its path. The noise was unbelievable. It was so loud. The wind was so strong. And the skies were so dark. All I could do was cover my babies and yell, God, please keep us safe. Please put your angels around us. Please, God. I begged and pleaded God to keep us safe. The tornado seemed to go on and on and the thought of what it would be like to wake up in heaven passed through my mind. The pillow was on my head. It flew immediately off and I thought, man, it's me against the tornado now. So I got lower down on my girls. I begged God to please let it end. Please let it end. When I finally came, when it finally came to an end, I sat there checking on the girls and I heard a voice that I know very well saying, Ange, 
Ange? Ange? It was my mom. She'd been on the phone the entire time the tornado ripped through my house. I couldn't believe it. I had to search a little through the debris and I finally found my phone. First words out of my mouth were, everything's gone. It was so surreal. I covered the girls with their daddy's coat that landed nearby us. I had, it had started to rain huge raindrops. And I sat there thinking, what, what do I do? Where should I go? Should I stay here or go for help? And I decided I need to get the girls to safety. The lightning was striking extremely close and the rain was really coming down. And So I had Adley stand up and then I stood up with Avery. We did not have to crawl out or dig out. We just stood up where we were sitting. Everything was gone around us. Not a single wall was standing. And then I picked Adley up and carried both girls in my arm along with Adley's favorite blanket and stuffed puppy dog and carried them barefoot to a nearby church. I can't believe I carried them that far, not to mention barefoot. I didn't look around much. I was too afraid at what I would see. The girls and I just held each close and walked to where we knew that we would be seen. I walked to 20th and Wisconsin. I heard screams and cries and it broke my heart knowing that they were injured and even trapped people out there, but I had to keep walking to keep my girls safe. My mom, still on the phone, tried to figure out a place for me to go, but communication was hit and miss. And once I reached the church, we were all cold and tired and scared. We sat down on the church parking lot. Everywhere we looked had been destroyed. A nice Christian couple drove by and saw the girls and I sitting all alone in the middle of a deserted parking lot and told us to get in their truck. I'm so blessed by this family. They gave us towels and blankets to warm up. And they drove to the grandparents' house and got the girls new t-shirts to wear. And Avery was beginning to turn blue because she was so cold. Both girls were so brave and barely cried. Adley was worried about Daddy and so was I, but we couldn't reach him by phone. I knew my heart, my heart, he was okay. But Adley and I said a prayer for Daddy, trusting God that he had taken care of him too. Trey's work was not hit, praise the Lord. The sweet family took us to Home Depot parking lot where I saw a highway patrolman. My mom had told me a trooper would be looking for me, so I knew I had to talk to them. I finally got to talk to a trooper, and he helped get word to my dad where I was. This nice trooper drove my girls down 20th Street to my mother-in-law's house, which thankfully is not hurt by the tornado. Not much long after I arrived, a familiar vehicle sped into the driveway. It was my mom and dad. I'd never been so relieved in my life. I gave my mommy a huge hug and started to cry. I had stayed so strong until that moment. Thinking back over that night, I can see how God had a hand in keeping us safe. Trey called and told me to watch the weather. He normally does not call me at work. My sister-in-law accidentally typed, texted a message to my mom that there was a tornado warning in Joplin. My mom called and told me there was a tornado warning just seconds before the sirens went off. I got out of the bathtub and stayed in the hallway. This is fifth on the list. We just stood up and walked out of the tornado basically untouched. I had a few and bruises, but no big deal. Number six observation, she said, the houses surrounding my house, which are five of them, all had at least one wall standing in their home. I had none. Not a single one. Seven. Adley's dresser was knocked over at a 45 degree angle, holding the outer brick wall up to act as a ramp at the exact spot where we were sitting across the hall, which we believed helped things go over our heads. Eight, I believe God put us in the exact spot we needed to be during the tornado. If we'd been further back, we would have been crushed. If we were further forward, we probably would have been blown away. We can't find our major appliances. That blew me away. But Trey's grandma's glass candy dish we got after she died was untouched. 
Two cars flew into my house on either side of us and they could easily have landed on us. But God was gracious and protected Angie and her children. It's a great story of survival. It's very gripping and it's appropriate for our text this morning. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 12. Like last week, it's going to be another windy, shaking, terrifying text, much like took what took place at Joplin, Missouri two weeks ago. Perhaps you can see it here in the, the words beginning in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. And His voice shook the earth then. But now He is promising, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I trust you can see the shaking in the text. It's right there in verse 26. And His voice shook the earth then. It's a reference to the giving of a law at Mount Sinai. When God gave the law... Exodus 20, verse 18 says that the whole mountain quaked violently. The sound was a a sound of a trumpet that grew louder and louder and louder. And God answered Moses in a thunder. It was a fearful scene, every bit as much as the Joplin tornado. In fact, when the people saw what took place on the mountain, they perceived the thunder and the lightning flash and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. They trembled and stood at the distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Imagine Joplin tornado watching that on the mountain and being scared of it and just saying, You go up there, not me. This text is what's taking place. But then, just as the shaking took place on Sinai, it will come again. Look at verse 26. Now He has promised, saying, yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This future shaking is as sure as sure can be. It's a prophecy in Haggai. Chapter 2, verse 6. About a thousand years after Sinai, the earth was shaken back then. And Haggai the prophet says, I'm going to shake the earth again, says the Lord. We turn to the prophecy of the coming of Jesus. Some allusions to the first coming of Jesus when Jesus' disciples turned the world upside down. There was a shaking then. It's a prophecy about Christ soon after this coming into the temple and the greater glory being better than the first glory. But particularly though, this has a prophecy towards the end of the world when God will shake everything on this earth much like a combine shakes a corn cob until all the kernels get off. So likewise, this whole earth will be shaken until all is removed and a new heavens and a new earth are created in that day. And on that day, the whole of creation will be affected. And the shaking of the giving of the law was just a foretaste of what would come later. And that day will be so terrible and so violent that it will make the events at Joplin, Missouri this past week seem like a soft, gentle breeze. You can read through Revelation, just even a cursory reading of it will show you how terrible that will be when there are plagues and famine and 
hail and fire and stars falling from the sky. At times, a third of the earth being wiped out. Some will escape safely protected by the hands and arms of God. And some will perish in their rebellion. But all of creation will experience this tornado. That's what verse 27 is about, right? This expression, yet once more. Talking about Haggai. And I love how he's just expositing Haggai. He says, yet once more. That denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken. That is, of the created things. So things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, all creation will be shaken. The earth and the heavens will be devastated that day. And the only thing that will survive is the souls of people in the Word of God. And how important it is for us today to have our souls right before the Lord. How important it is that your soul is right today. I trust you can see the seriousness of the text, the severity of the text. I mean, I love preaching joy and happiness, but it's not here. This is terrifying. We're not playing around with this text. We're talking about serious consequences if you refuse to follow Jesus Christ. When you follow Jesus, you're like Angie Williams in the storm. Destruction all around you. Safe in this pocket of protection because the dressers come down and the wind is blowing over and the cars on either side. It's what it's like to be safe in the hands of God, protected through Christ. And our text this morning is a warning to all of us. In fact, it is the fifth warning of the book of Hebrews. It would do well for us to review these warnings. As after this, there aren't any more warnings. The first warning comes in chapter two. So turn back there to chapter two, verses one through four. And these warnings get progressively increasing in severity. Chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The warning here is simple, right? Don't drift. Don't drift from the Gospel. Don't drift from Christ. Maybe you remember when I preached upon that, I said that the... Uh, Christian life isn't a lake where you go out there and just float in a lake as long as you want and then kind of come back to shore. Rather, the Christian life is like what? You remember? It's a river that's flowing this way. And if you just get out there in your inner tube right, or your floaty diapers or whatever you're going to be out there in, you're just going to drift down the river. You need to work to continue to go so you don't drift. The consequences of drifting away are devastating. Listen, think about it. If they didn't escape in the Old Testament, much less will we escape in the New Covenant era. How shall we escape? The question there? We won't. Verse 3. How will we escape we neglect so great salvation? We won't if we neglect this salvation. You'd be like out on the street, Joplin, Missouri. You'd just be taken away. Second warning comes in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. Key phrases there. Do not harden your hearts when they provoked Me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried Me by testing Me and saw My works for forty years, therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know My ways. I swore My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. 
And then the crux of the warning comes here, the application. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the warning here is really simple. It's don't harden your hearts. Come right there at the end of verse 13. So you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It comes there in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. See, hardening of the heart can prove fatal to your body. The heart won't work well, the hardening of the arteries, and so likewise, the hardening of the heart, the spiritual heart, can prove fatal to your soul. So don't ignore the warning signs that God has given you. Don't let your heart resist God's Word. Don't be like the Israelites who refused to believe though they saw great signs and wonders and God's wrath was against them. You can see that in verse 11. I swore in my wrath. They will not enter my rest. And that continues on through verse 4. Because His wrath will be upon you if you depart from Christ. The third warning comes in Hebrews chapter 6. You can turn over there. Actually, it starts in chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning Jesus, it says, We have much to say and it is hard to explain because since you have become dull of hearing... We want more to tell you about Jesus, but we can't because you're dull. You should be teachers, but you're not by now. Then he says, let's press on in verse 1. And then he says in verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, impossible to renew them again to repentance as they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. The warning is this. Listen to His voice. Be ready to hear His voice. Don't fall away. If you've come into this assembly and tasted and touched the work of Christ and then refused Him, there's no hope. What this is saying. There's no hope refusing Christ. So don't fall away. Fourth warning comes in chapter 10. Verse 26. And this is perhaps the most severe of all, though rivaled by our passage. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's just a heavy statement. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins. But... This is what remains. A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is Mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The warning here is to stop sinning willfully. You say, what does that mean? Well, all of our sin in one sense is willful. But in the context here, it's to stop doing those things that demonstrate that you clearly don't believe Jesus is your Messiah, is the One who's come to save you. Stop offering the sacrifices. Stop going to the priest. Stop thinking your good works are going to save you. Stop trusting in other things rather than trusting in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Stop doing those things which overtly deny the Gospel. You're 
religious involvement that shows you're trusting in that rather than trusting in Christ and Him alone. And again, the consequences are, are dreadful. God will take out His vengeance upon you. If you think it was bad for those who rejected Moses, it's worse for us. How much severe punishment, verse 29, will we deserve if we reject Jesus? And all these warnings are calling us to press on. Press on, right? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He just expounds. This epistle is all about lifting high. Jesus is so great. So press on. Don't fall away from Him. And I'm warning you four times. In fact, this one in our text this morning is the fifth and last warning. It's the title of my message this morning. One last warning. This is the final tornado siren. It's saying, get down! Get down! Get down! It's coming. In chapter 13, we find no warnings. Only encouragement to follow the Lord. The chapter's packed with practical applications, how we need to overcome and how we need to follow the Lord. I mean, even look at, there's one command per verse. Look at verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 3. Remember the prisoners as in prison with them. 4. Marriage is to be held undefiled. Five, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Then six continues on. But here's the next one. Seven, remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you. Verse nine, do not be carried away by various teachings. It just goes on and on. Just, just command after command after command after command after command. That's because the warnings are done. He's saying this is how we ought to live. How it is we ought to treasure Christ. But here we have one last warning. My outline is two points this morning. They're formed from the commands in the passage. I trust you see the first one there in verse 25, right? See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Here's my first point. Do not refuse Him. Don't refuse Him. Obviously, he's talking about the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. It's interesting here. He says, Jesus is speaking. It's a present tense. Jesus is speaking. Do not reform, refuse Him who is speaking. In fact, we know that God has spoken to us in Jesus. The epistle to the Hebrews starts that way. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. And Jesus, by the way, is still speaking. What's He saying? Well, verse 24 tells us, gives a clue what He's saying. Look, 24. And we're coming to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks... Better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse Him with speaking. You've got to link those two verses. So what is He speaking? I think it's His blood that's speaking here. I think Jesus is speaking about His blood. He's speaking about the Gospel, the good news, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. That we don't need to stand before God condemned, but in Jesus we are cleansed through His sacrifice upon the cross and His blood which flowed down upon us, washes us clean, white as snow. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 22, he says, According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Right? You need blood being shed to forgive us. And according to chapter 10, verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats can't do it. But it's the blood of Jesus. His offering up, chapter 10, verse 14, offering up, one offering is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus is, if you will, our storm shelter. He is our safe room. He is our hallway in Joplin, Missouri. 
you know, with all these tornadoes coming about more and more, uh, I've seen some advertisements for safe rooms. I'm not sure you've seen there's a, a room that will just protect and withstand from any of the onslaughts of any kind of tornado. Sometimes they're in the basement, sometimes they're up top. So there are even whole colonies kind of being built underground just to protect for this disaster coming through. Jesus is our safe room. That in Jesus, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He is our safe room. And that's what he's saying by this blood that's being shed. This blood that is being poured out. He's saying, don't look at the ways of the old covenant to forgive your sins. Don't look to yourself to earn your salvation, right? Look to me. My blood is sufficient. Trust me. Trust my blood. Trust my sacrifice. The issue of the book of Romans is that some weren't listening to this voice. This blood of Jesus was speaking and people were ignoring it. In fact, all of the warning sections, that's an issue. The first three, it's even explicitly stated. He's speaking and you're not hearing. Chapter 2. We already did it, right? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For the word first spoken by the Lord was confirmed by the apostles. So don't drift away from what you have heard. Here's Jesus speaking. And then to drift away is just basically to ignore and to stop hearing and not to listen to His voice. To refuse Him who is speaking, if you will. Remember the warning in chapter 3. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. You're hearing His voice. They heard His voice alright. He's speaking, but they hardened His hearts. Are you hearing His voice? In fact, in Hebrews 3 and 4, the whole section is there. It's if you hear His voice, if you hear His voice, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. If you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Three times, just again and again and again. Do you hear or are you refusing Him who's speaking? Or in chapter 5 and 6, that warning section, right? You become dull of hearing. They're hearing... But their hearings become dull. And he's just saying, listen up and pay attention. Be a good student. Don't refuse him who is speaking. So don't refuse Jesus. He's your only hope. I mean, all of Hebrews is pointing us to this. He's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, better than all the high priests. He offers a better covenant founded upon a better sacrifice. He's entered a better tabernacle and offered to bring you there. If you don't refuse him. I got to just believe in Him. So I thought about this warning. I thought about the audacity of those who would refuse Him. It's amazing. He says, the storm is coming. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, but there's a pocket in which you can be safe in the hallway. Go there and get low and lower yourself. And then, to say, no thank you, Jesus. I think I'll... I'll go outside and I'll stand right here. I'll take on the tornado. (laughs) I mean, that's that's what people say who refuse Jesus. I'll take on the tornado by myself. You'll be swept away. Now, you can refuse Jesus in little things and you can refuse Jesus in big things. No, it's the little things that lead to the big things. No child grows up and leaves the home 
at 18, a sinful, rebellious child without first rebelling in little things first. It begins with a temper tantrum at age two. It continues the refusal to hold hands to cross the street at age three. There are the swear words that come at verse seven unchecked. There are the influential friends at age twelve. First experience of drugs and alcohol at 13. 16 come the driver's license, a late night out at 14. It's no shocker to anyone. Our son David is um, four years old, turned four years old. When was his birthday? Monday was his birthday, turned four years old. So around here, I don't know if there's a law around here. Thou shalt not go in the nursery if you're four years old or older. I'm not sure what the commandment is, but... But David's not in the nursery any longer. He's in the children's church. And so it's the first time really he's joined us for corporate worship. So that was kind of interesting. And um, maybe some of you saw we were kind of giving him instructions. But uh, yeah, at one point he was sitting down and Chris says, Dad, is it okay if he sat down? That's yeah, okay if he sits down. I thought, no. you know what? Now he's, I want to, I want to get at him now when it's little, because little things are going to big things. You know, let's just, let's just make him happy. Stand up, kind of, we're standing up. We're sitting down, he can sit down, he stands up, he can stand up. Um, but that's, it's like even in your parenting. Right? Get them when they're small, when you can win the battle. Because when they get bigger, they're harder to win. And people who forsake Christ, like these people in Hebrews, it's not, it's, it's not that they just do so in a moment. There's lots of things leading up to it. You know, for them, it may be just things about these Jewish people saying, oh, you know, questioning the priests and questioning about the sacrifice and questioning about these. And we've talked about that, that quite a bit, but it, but it never would have just come out. It would have been a, a series of steps along the way that the doubt comes and then you're thinking about it more and, and you go on. And, and I think it begins with refusing him as little things. Because that's the way people always fall in a way. Remember Judas? Long before he ever portrayed Jesus, he was pilfering the money bag first. Remember Solomon? Before he had 700 wives, he had two wives. Before he had 300 concubines, he had one concubine. Starting little and then getting bigger. The prodigal son, it's fiction, but there are prodigal sons. Seeds and rebellion long before he left home. That's how life works. The little things that lead to the big things. Those who fall into adultery begin with pornography. Those who embezzle millions begin by embezzling a few. Those who commit perjury on the witness stand are told many lies before ever taking the stand and taking the oath. So don't refuse them on the little things. They'll lead to big things. I remember hearing the testimony of a pastor who had a, an affair with a church secretary. He said, I'll start with a simple hug in his office. And then one thing led to another, led to another, led to another, led to another. Eventually removed from the church. Eventually divorced his wife. Married the secretary. Fled the state. Church family, just don't refuse him of speaking. Cut off every known sin. It's one last warning from this book. Listen to Jesus. Listen to everything He says. Believe Him and trust Him and follow Him. Because all those who forsake Jesus started with the little things. So don't refuse Him. Cause, verse 25, here's the motivation why. If those who did not escape when they refused Him will warn them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him and warns from heaven. 
Again, again, similar argument coming up in the book of Hebrews, right? Comparing the days of the Old Covenant with the days of the New Covenant. This is what they had back then. This is what we have today. They were at disadvantage and they still were punished by God. God still had vengeance upon them. How much more do you think we, people of privilege, will get? Argument, right? You want to follow Moses? Well, Moses is just a servant... But Jesus is the Son. That's how it was. This is how it is. How much better to follow Jesus? You want to be a priest like Aaron? He was a weak man. But Jesus, He's the Son made perfect forever. Boy, let's follow Him. Much more privilege. You want to follow the Old Covenant? Well, the mere mention of a new makes the second, makes the first obsolete. Priests, sacrifices, Jesus is better than all those. We are people of privilege. And if, the Word of God proved unalterable in the Old Testament. How much severe punishment we deserve? Or 10, 20, how much severe punishment do you think we will deserve? Trample their foot the Son of God, regardless of clean the blood of the covenant, and so on and so forth. And here's the same thing. Don't refuse Him because if they didn't escape when they refused to warn them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. Right? Do you remember the day when the law was given to Israel? The people of Israel received the law. They pledged their obedience. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Three times they said that. After the initial giving of law in, in Exodus 24. All that the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. All we will do. And how did that fare? Not too well. They failed to hear His voice. Failed to trust Him. Failed to believe. They conquered the land. They grumbled. complained. They doubted. They turned on Moses. They hardened their heart. They started well, but they ended poorly. Test after test after test after test. In fact, God identifies ten times. And you can count them through Exodus, right on through. Just kind of right as they get out, whether it's the bitter water, whether it's the manna being hungry, whether it's being thirsty, you know, all these other things. They're just time after time after time, they denied God. And God said, well, I'll let you die in the wilderness. Here's God's word in the matter. Numbers 24, 23 and 22 and 23. Surely all the men who have seen My glory and My sign which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put Me to the test these ten times and have not listened to My voice, they shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. All those twenty years and up died in the wilderness. If you saw it, you died. If you didn't believe. With the exception of two. Who are the exceptions, kids? Remember? Yes. Joshua and Caleb. The two that escaped. Other than that, no one escaped. And that's what verse 25 is talking about. If those did not escape, when they refused Him, how much more us. With fewer privileges, God didn't let them escape. With more privileges, do you think He's going to let us escape? No. Because we've learned more, because we know more, we're in a place of greater condemnation and judgment. Say, will you learn from this? So verses 26 and 27 say, the earth is going to be shaken. We've already gone through those. I don't think I need to go through them again except verse 27. There's some things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's the key. 
because the things which cannot be shaken may remain, because we are, are safe in the safe room of Jesus, that leads us to the second point. Because that, verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here's my second point. Show gratitude. First, don't refuse Him. Second, show gratitude. In Jesus Christ, the, the truth is this, that we have an unshakable kingdom. Jesus promised, I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He said, here's my church. It's going to conquer. It's going to go on. It's not going to be shaken. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father's give them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That is an unshakable kingdom. That is Jesus saying, when you come, I've got you and I'm not letting go. Right? The safety of the child doesn't so much depend upon the child's adhering to the mom. The safety of the child depends upon the mom holding the child. And that's where our safety and security lies in God holding us. Psalm 110. 110, often quoted in Hebrews, shows how unshakable the kingdom is. Four times in Hebrews it's quoted. Hebrews 1.3 speaks about Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the picture here. He's done His work. He sits down. He's waiting. Hebrews 1.13, to Jesus the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is there sitting in His recliner, His feet on the footstool, just waiting until the time would come. That's how sure and secure and unshakable His kingdom will be. He is seated on the throne and He's just waiting to come. Hebrews 11. I'm going to see Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He's sitting, waiting to fully rule and reign. His kingdom is not going to be shaken. In Hebrews 12 too, remember Jesus... Joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And what's he done after that? He sat down at the right hand of God in a secure, settled place where his kingdom will be unshakable. And that's not to say that people have tried to shake the kingdom, because many have. When the apostles began preaching Jesus, the Jewish authorities commanded them not to speak or teach at all the name of Jesus. But that couldn't shake the kingdom. The kingdom continued to progress and continued to grow. Paul even knew that the, there were going to be people trying to shake, shake the kingdom. He said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be difficulties on the way to the kingdom of God, but it's not going to be shaken. So rather than snuffing out the kingdom, those tribulations only cause the kingdom to progress and grow. You can read about that in the various progress reports and acts. The church grew and it grew and it was strengthened. And then in church history, right? The Romans attempted to snuff out the church through the persecution of Christians. At that point, the church flourished. So much so that in 300 years, it became not the Roman Empire, it became the Holy Roman Empire. Christianity conquered the day. When they tried to snuff it out, I mean, you've got to catch the irony of that. They're trying to destroy Christianity. What happens? Christianity comes to reign the land. You think about the former Soviet Union attempting to enforce their atheism. And again and again, the church flourished. The kingdom stood strong. I'd say the church was stronger 20 years ago than it is today in Russia because it was strong back then. They're trying to persecute it. Once there's a measure of freedom, people, Christians face a measure of ease. 
But it shows how unshakable things are. That even when people try to shake it, it, it isn't. It is, it is secure there. You know, all of us, we love to be on the side of a winner, right? Right? I mean, I, I was watching the, the playoffs, right, where the Bulls were playing the, the Miami Heat. And I'm a, I'm a Bulls fan. I'm a Chicago fan. That's where I am. And once Chicago lost, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Who cares about the finals? But if, my, if the Bulls would have won... I may not have gone to the Boundary Waters tomorrow because they're playing today. Because we want to win. But I have good news for you, right? That God's kingdom will win. It's going to prevail in the end. If you want to be a winner, jump on. Jump on board. So I encourage you, in light of the unshakable kingdom we have, to show gratitude. That's what verse 28 says. In light of, since we have this unshakable kingdom, let us show gratitude. Literally, it says, let us have grace. New King James, King James translation has that. In other words, let grace be in us and let grace saturate us and let us realize this kingdom is a gift to us. We, we haven't earned this. It's been all God's grace. Let's look at that. Let's rejoice in it. And those filled with grace put forth gratitude. I mean, there's no reason at all why we ought to escape the tornado. None. But God in His grace allows us a way to escape. And we escape totally by His grace just by believing upon Him. And, and what, what can we do but put forth the gratitude? That's why the translations, the NIV, ESV, NAS, right here, let's show gratitude. Same idea. Be so filled with grace that grace comes out, that gratitude and joy for all that God has done for us flows out. For the fact that He died for us and provided a better way for us and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To God be the glory forever and ever. And that ought to ooze out of every believer in Jesus Christ. And it ought to drive us to service to Him. It's not just lips gratitude here. It is feet gratitude as well. Look again at verse 28. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. It's how we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's by gratitude. In other words, God's grace is what fills us and empowers us and strengthens us then to serve Him. And I just say, don't miss this. It's how the church works how you and how I am motivated to love and good deeds. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves a gift of God. Masters of the works that no one can boast. God saves us by His grace. He lavishes His grace upon us. Then what? We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grace comes first and then we walk in our good deeds flowing from the grace because we have the grace and because that's what we want to do. Love and good deeds can be motivated different different ways. It can be motivated by guilt, by high pressure, or it can be motivated by an amazement of God's grace in our life that carries us along. And I would say one is way stronger than the other. First, might get some results, might get a lot of action, might get a lot of pressure, but eventually there's worn out, burnout. But when grace fills you, God gives us all the strength that we need that will produce a long-lasting fruit in the lives of yourself and in the light of a church as well. 
Because deep within us, when we know what God has done for our souls, will overflow to Him with grace and thankfulness that we will live for Him. And that, by the way, whole concept and thought is what preludes in how verse 13 fits in with chapter 12. It's everything in us. Overflowing of the overwhelming grace of God. That's why we love the brethren. Verse 1. That's why we don't neglect to show hospitality. That's why we remember the prisoners. That's why we keep marriage pure. That's why we're free from the love of money. It's because we love God more than anything else in the world. And many, many, many can get this wrong. You can get this wrong on a daily basis. That's why you need to remind yourself of the Gospel every day. Say, no, God, it's Your grace. And I'm, everything I'm doing today is flowing from Your grace. Thank You for giving me the grace to give me a desire to read or to pray. To love my wife or my husband or my children. To work for them. It's, it's, all, it's all there. You know, People can do things because they think God will be happy with them. Oh, look, God, look what I'm doing. You'll be happy with me. You'll bless me. And they think it's kind of like this tit for tat. I'm really good, and then you pay me? No, so God has done all. What can we do but to be really good? Or many can just do things because they have a pressure applied to them from others, right? They're looking at, well, if I don't do this, what are others going to think? So I better do it so that I, you know... If you live like that, first of all, you're going to be paranoid. You're not... You're not going to know what to do, but you're going to have zero power to live the Christian life. Others do things out of duty. Well, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I do. Duty can't do it. But God says this, I, I do believe. He says, don't serve me from duty. Serve me from delight. Um, John Piper's book, Desiring God, this is the premise of the book, is that... Um, is that there's this duty... That, uh, Desiring God is a big, big, big book, but it was written to a smaller book. It's called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. It's the delight that gives us the heart to do the duty. It's the delight in God that gives us the heart to do the things that God tells us to do. And when you see this concept, when you see everything's motivated by grace, you see then the, the glory of God and our joy coming together, as John Piper has said so well, right? So overwhelmed by God's grace in us, we give glory to God and we are ultimately happiest in Him and therefore we work itself out in worship to God and love to brothers and our, our checkbook makes a difference in that. Our, our married lives make a difference in that. How we relate with our kids. How we relate with the world. Everything does change from that when you catch the grace of God that, that we have it, that we are filled with it. So let God's grace so fill you that you, all you can do is show gratitude. Finally, there's a spirit of how we ought to go about doing this. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And again, we're drawn back here into the Old Testament. Just before Moses was going to enter into the land, he warned the people. He said, watch yourselves. That you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made with you and made for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything which the Lord God has commanded you. And then he says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So if we serve God, we still need to keep in mind, yes, everything for us in Jesus is ours, but there is a reverence that we still need to keep here and understand of how consuming and how jealous God is 
that we may not forget the covenant, that we may pursue Him. And we do that with reverence and awe. There's synonyms, just talking about fear, talking about um, doing things in a non-flippant way, never presuming upon God, but realizing this is the same God we're coming to. We come through Jesus Christ, so it looks different. He looks different, but still is the same God. We still need to serve Him with reverence and awe. He's a consuming fire. He's the one that's going to consume all things. I was thinking this week about the, the lake of fire. I never thought about this before, but I've always pictured a lake of fire as um, this, this watery lake with fire on top. Uh, I just, I've, it's kind of been in my mind, right? This, this, this lake that's on fire. And so you think about it, right? you get you're thrown into the lake of fire, which those who don't believe will be thrown into the lake of fire. God will consume them, though they will burn forever, according to Matthew chapter 25. But it's not like that. It's not like you just kind of go through this wave of fire on the outside. It's like fires throughout this whole thing. So deep down there's fire. Up top there's fire. It's molten fire. Just like you go into a lake and get wet, you go to a lake of fire, you will be burned wherever you are. And God is this consuming fire. And I think He's trying to bring to our remembrance the fact of this shaken aspect of verse 26 and 27. He's going to shake it so the things which are unshakable may remain because He's going to consume everything. He's going to, it's going to be the fire. And we need to understand that. We need to walk rightly before the Lord with reverence and awe in our service. So let's walk before Him in joy for sure, but there can be a holy reverential joy as well. Well, that's the one last warning for us this week. Um, And then we'll get to chapter 13 next week. So let's pray. Father, thank You for these words. Thank You for the seriousness of what they are. God, I pray that You'd help us to, to see them for what they are. Realize the, the calling upon our lives. I pray for everyone in this room, God, that we might not refuse You. Little things are big things. But hear what You say and jump. God, as Psalm 68 says, unite my heart to fear Your name. 86. I pray that You would do that, God, to to bring our heart into unity to fear Your name. That we wouldn't refuse You, but that we would be a thankful people. Be a people so filled with grace that we could do nothing but serve You and love You all of our days. And I pray, Lord, for Your Spirit to come. We need Your Holy Spirit to convict where hearts need to be convicted, to break, to break hearts. Where hardening is just starting to happen, I pray, Lord, that You would break that that the little things would be cast off. God, and give us such an overwhelming perspective of Your grace in the Gospel. Father, that we would so love You and so long to serve You in Your way. Thank You for Your Word. May we go forth today in the power of Your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.